Um, I haven't missed this much church in my life. So uh, it's really nice to see you all and to be back with you. And uh, especially tonight, since we're starting this new series in the book of Job and really talking about the reality of suffering. And as I was thinking about that this week, um, I recalled uh, a memory. It was my first memory of real emotional pain in my life, and I was five years old. I've told some of you the story, um, but I was in kindergarten, and in kindergarten as a five-year-old, I started my first serious relationship, okay? You laugh. It was, it was true. Her name was Ashley, and uh, we would play together at recess, and me and Ashley, we would kiss. Uh, we would kiss often, which... Having a five-year-old now seems absurd to me, and how my parents didn't think that was wrong uh, is really strange to me, but uh, we, would, we would kiss at recess, and, and we were girlfriend and boyfriend, and one day, though, I found out that Ashley was seeing somebody else, and his name was Kevin, okay? The, the, the fact that I can remember his name shows you how deeply hurt I was by this, okay? And I saw with my two own eyes, because I looked across the uh, playground, and there was Ashley and Kevin, and they were smooching. And as a five-year-old, I didn't have these like fear of conflict moments, so I just marched across the playground and was like, what's going on here? And um, Kevin in informed me, Ashley was quiet, but uh, Kevin informed me that it was over between me and Ashley. And I wish I was being hyperbolic, I'm not, it was my first heartbreak. And... And in, and in some way, I learned rather quickly, uh, as, as I'm sure you guys have in maybe different ways, that none of us get through life unscathed by pain or hard times or suffering. And, and even as a little five-year-old with a relationship that really didn't matter at the end of the day, I began to feel that. And in fact, um, you've probably heard this. People have said that you either probably are just leaving a time, a season in your life where you went through suffering, or you are in a season of suffering and heartache. Or if that's not you, we are promised that eventually in life that, that will be our experience. And so we've either left a season or in a season or will enter a season that we would categorize as difficulty or a season of suffering, a season of suffering. You see, we, we live in a world of miscarriages and cancer. We live in a world where we experience maybe the loss of our own dignity when people discriminate against us. Or we might experience the loss of our innocence when someone takes advantage of us. We live in a world where we can get fired for doing the right thing where we lose everything over something that just seemed in that moment to be out of our own control. We live in a world where we can do everything right, where you could eat right, you'd be the most healthy kale-eating person every day, and go to CrossFit every night, and still get sick. See, if we were so brave tonight, and, and we could almost turn this evening into this like communal sharing time, I would bet that each one of us at some level could stand up and tell some story of, of loss and pain that we've experienced. Maybe you're so young that you haven't experienced too much yet, but you could at least talk about somebody who you love deeply that's been affected in some way. 
And I think the reason we'd be sharing those stories is not because those stories are unique, but just the opposite, that they're very common. And that's just the sadness that we, we live in and the things that we deal with. But let's be honest, if you are a Christian tonight, if you follow Jesus, if you have a relationship with God through Christ, there is another troubling layer to all of this. And that is that we believe deeply that we worship a God who is good, who is loving, who is powerful, who sovereignly rules his world and promises his people good. That he is a God who knows the number of hairs on our head. And scriptures tell us that not a sparrow falls to the ground without him even noticing it. And that knowledge, I think, drives us to ask honest questions. Not just honest questions about the situations that we find ourselves in, but it drives us to ask honest questions about our God in the midst of painful moments. See, when we read a story like Job's, if we're being honest, it's really hard to compare ourselves to him. I mean, who in, in, their, in this room has suffered in the way that Job has suffered, if you've read this story before? I mean, not many of us can actually compare it to his type of suffering, at least the magnitude of it. But then even on a, on a, on a different end of the spectrum, how many of us can actually compare to Job's righteousness? Like, how good and God-fearing and God-following Job is. I mean, so many of us would say, well, he's a way better person than I even am. And so when we come to a book like Job, which is this amazingly massive, epic poem that even people who aren't Christians, who don't even really like the Bible, look at a book like Job and say, it's an, it's an ancient masterpiece. It's very respected. But when you look at a book like Job, I think Job, in this story, it doesn't minimize your suffering by saying, hey, look how bad Job has it, so whatever you're going through, just compare yourself to Job and say, oh, I don't have that bad, so I guess I'll just be quiet and go on my merry way. That's not what is intended by us actually looking at the book of Job. What's interesting is we look at the magnitude of this type of suffering and we realize that when it comes to suffering, we can't measure suffering objectively. That no matter how great your suffering is or no matter how small you think your suffering is, we all go through suffering and we all ask the same types of questions. Why me? Why her? Why, why would God let this happen to anyone? Why the silence? Why no answer? Where is he? Where is God in the midst of this? I mean, where is God when my world falls apart? I mean, that's really a, a major question that we're confronted with when we're disoriented by our suffering. See, we all long for answers in our suffering. And if you look at the chapter 23 of Job, Job even makes this declaration referring to God. He says, oh, that I knew where I might find him, referring to God, that I might come even to his seat. 
I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with my arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. He's basically saying, if I could figure out where I could find God in the midst of this pain, I would go to him and I would lay my case before him and then I would understand why I'm going through all this. See, Job is a staggeringly honest book. But Job doesn't answer all the questions that we might bring to it. But there's some massive encouragement in it, let me tell you. I mean, even tonight, as we look at Job chapters 1 and 2, uh, it reveals to us first that you and I, we shouldn't accept, nor should we offer pat answers to suffering. And when it comes to suffering, we shouldn't accept pat answers nor offer them to people. Secondly, though, this section of Job shows us, it gives us this answer that's only revealed in the midst of suffering. And it's a difficult question that we have to deal with tonight. But then thirdly, I want us to see that Job gives us an answer that we can cling to in our suffering. It does give us an answer. So first, Job, I think, is showing us that we should not accept a pat answer when it comes to suffering, nor should we offer it. I think uh, people in life, we, you, you've probably been there, we could be very quick to try to bring answers to bear upon people's painful situations. We just want to like fix it, okay? And I think most often there are sort of like these two approaches that we take when we come to people in the midst of suffering or that we're processing in our own minds as we're dealing with something difficult. One we could just call like this moralistic approach uh, to these situations. Basically, it's living in this place that says, if I do good enough things, then everything's going to be all right. If I'm generally a good person, if I always do what's right, then things will go well, well for me. I won't experience suffering, maybe in the way that that person has. And so the, the approach is basically, if, if you're going through something really difficult, then you must have done something wrong. And so Christians, especially, who approach things in this way will often say, well, you've sinned in some way against God. If you just confess your sin, then maybe things will go better for you. That's why you're in this predicament. That's why you're in this season of suffering. The second approach I think that often people take in these situations is sort of like an irreligious approach. It's a God doesn't exist sort of approach. And basically that's looking at suffering in life and it's just saying, well, it's all just a big crapshoot. It's just a part of living in the world. It just happens to everybody. In fact, it, in their mind, it actually probably proves that there isn't a God. Because if there is a God, there's no way that he would allow this to happen to people. But if I could even go as far as to believe there is a God and he's letting this happen to people, then he's probably not that powerful and definitely not good. And so these are kind of two classic approaches to suffering. And here in chapters 1 and 2 of Job, we see that Job reveals that there are no pat answers to suffering. In fact, this, these two chapters alone poke a ton of holes in those two approaches. I mean, just look here at the beginning. It, it's describing our character Job, and this is important as we go through this series here, it says in verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. He was the greatest of all the people in the East. 
So basically, if you read these first three verses, you could summarize it by saying, Job is awesome. I mean, he's just an amazing guy. Uh, We do think that Job probably lived during the time of the patriarchs, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And some of the reasons for that is because in this book, there is no reference to the tabernacle. There's no reference to the law. So most people believe that he lived before that was given through Moses. But we also believe that Job was actually a real person. And we believe that because in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet himself references Job. And then when you read the book of James in the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus, references the life and example of Job. We know that that he was a great man. And we know that from these two focuses that is given here. One, his character. It says that he was blameless and upright. That's what the narrator tells you. But then if you look in verse 8, you see that God himself echoes that claim. He says, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So even this is God's perspective of Job. So he has high character. But it's also important to realize here that when this is talking about blamelessness, this isn't saying that Job was perfect. It's not saying that he's sinless. This is just speaking of the fact that Job is a man of integrity, that what's on the inside is portrayed on the outside. He's not a hypocrite. He's not a fake. He is a genuine, God-fearing, God-following, God-loving man. And that's what we're supposed to see here. But secondly, we see that he is a man of great wealth. I mean, you see all those like thousands of oxen and camels and donkeys and all this stuff, and I'm, I'm guessing no one in here owns many animals, let alone that many animals. So when you read that, you're like, well, this doesn't relate to me. And back in this day, that just meant you had a lot of money, okay? So maybe just imagine having a pretty significant bank account. I mean, you get the kid part. I mean, it's 10 kids, which some of you sound like that's not wealth, that's poverty, but it's, it's wealth, Okay. Uh, he probably you could equate it to having a lot of nice cars or if you're new to creating families, like nice sweet vans, which you will drool over someday, right? He had like a pretty nice house, right? You want to picture Job if you want to see how this relates to your life in a way that he is living the good life. Job has done all the right things. He is a good, God-fearing man. He's living the dream. In the narrator, though, he wants to zero in even more on his character, because look in verse 4. It says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So don't read here that Job has this perspective that his kids are like these party animals, and so he's really aware of their sin. No, it's saying, I am afraid that maybe in their hearts, in a way that I can't see, they have sinned against God. And so he rises early and offers these sacrifices for them. He has so much care for his kids, love for his kids, but a a love for God in the way that his kids would relate to him rightly. So this is the good life. He's doing everything right. But then in verse 6, we have this scene change. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? 
that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. I think as soon as you read that section, you have a few legitimate questions. I mean, who are the sons of God? Right? Why are they meeting with God? Why is Satan there? Okay? All really great questions that if I spent time answer, answering that, it would just get us off topic. And so I'm being serious. You can come and talk to me about that. I can point you to great resources. Okay? All good questions. But what's most important for us to understand as a reader is that we're getting a window into the governance of heaven. Here we see God, who needs no advice, but he's discussing his plans and delegating things to messengers and angels to go and to accomplish his will. And we see Satan. Satan literally here means the Satan. There's an article before the word, which means then the, the accuser. So this accuser, this Satan, is roaming around the earth and he's bringing charges about guilty people before God. But it's interesting. It's God who draws his attention to Job. Satan, this accuser, he doesn't come back from the earth and say, hey, Job, I don't know about that guy. No, God says, have you considered Job? So just consider that for a second when we're talking about pat answers to suffering, all right? So we see here that, one, suffering is not outside of God's plan. I mean, yes, God hates suffering. He hates it. When he created the world in Genesis, he made it good. It was perfect, he didn't create a world with sin and evil and suffering in it. That all came as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. And we know the end of our Bibles talks about how one day Jesus will return and he will make all things new. And there will be no more pain, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more tears, there will be no more suffering. So we know that God hates suffering. But we can see here in a book like Job that sometimes God accomplishes his plan by rescuing us from suffering, but sometimes he accomplishes his plan by carrying us through suffering. But secondly, throughout this test that Satan is allowed to bring upon Job, God remains in absolute sovereign control. Do you see that? Satan is a roaring lion, but he's a lion on a leash. You see that in, in verse 12. God sets the rules. He sets the boundaries. He says, you can take whatever you want, but do not touch Job. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, you see him say, you can touch him physically now, but you cannot take his life. So God is the one that's allowing this to actually happen here to Job. See, none of this makes the story we're about to see easier to swallow. But, but it does reveal to us that in our suffering, we must not accept pat answers. Nor should we seek to offer pet answers to those who are suffering. And this is really difficult for us as Westerners. 
Let's just be honest. Because we pride ourselves on being people of logic and reason. And we so arrogantly think that we must be able to understand all things. And if we don't, then we're going to minimize those situations so that we can better make sense of them at the end of the day. So really, maybe we can just sleep a little bit better at night. But we mustn't do that. Secondly, I think this section of Job is revealing an answer to a critical question that all of us must face tonight. And we find it in verse 9. Because what is the big question of this story? Then Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for no reason? He's basically saying, Does Job just love you for your stuff? Are you ignorant to the motivations of Job? Our family has experienced the worst month of sickness we've ever had. And uh, two weeks ago, uh, I left here and went and sat and laid down in a bed, and I didn't get out of that bed, basically, until like Saturday, like bronchitis. And so I was quarantined in our spare room, okay? Now, this spare room, my wife has told my daughter that she's going to make that into a girl's room. So when, Lord willing, when our baby's born in March, which hopefully it's a girl, that's what they told us, right, this is going to be a girl's room, okay? So I'm quarantined in this bedroom. And uh, it, it was a weird week because I'm in the house with my family the entire week. And uh, at one point later in the week, I told my wife, I'm like, gosh, I miss everybody. Like, I feel like I'm on some exiled trip or something. Like, I don't even know anybody anymore. Like, is Gus now, you know, teaching people stuff? Or, you know, I mean, like, I have, like, what is going on in my family's life? And so it was, it was so wonderful when one of my children would come up to the room and come give me a hug or something. And one day, it was probably like day five, Eden comes in the room and gives me a hug, and she says, I love you, Daddy. And as she's walking back to the door, she says, I really hope you feel better. And I should have just embraced that for what it was, you know? I was like, oh, thank you so much, sweetie. I can't wait to feel better either. And I could have stopped it there, but for some reason, I guess I was feeling really needy or something. And so I said, well, well why do you want me to feel better? Is that because you want to hang out with me and you miss me? I don't know why I said that. I should never have said that. She said, no, I cannot wait to see what mom does with this room. <laughs> so basically, in that moment, my five-year-old's like, I couldn't care less if you feel better. Like, that's nice, but the only reason I want you to feel better is so you would get out of here so I could get into my girl room now, okay? I, I felt more than ever that phrase, the truth of that phrase, ignorance is bliss, you know, I, I thought she had this great affection for me, and I realized, no, she didn't have that affection. She was using me in some ways, right? We all hate that, though, don't we? Don't we all hate that feeling? That, that feeling where you're being networked by somebody? You know what I'm talking about. That feeling of, of being used for something that someone else wants from us. I mean, there's probably many women in this room who've felt that way by another man. Or maybe there's a handful of men in here that have felt that way from another woman. Where you thought this person loved you. And they got to the moment where they realized they didn't really love you, they just loved it. And you weren't going to give it to them. Or maybe you felt this way... In, in, in some sort of friendship. Someone befriended you, and you got to the point where you realized they befriended you for some status it gave them or for some resource that you had that you could offer 
to them. That's, a, that's an awful feeling. See, this is the accuser, Satan's big question that spirals this whole story into motion. He says to God, when he says, have you considered Job? He says, of course Job worships you. I mean, look at him. Look at his life. He's living the dream. I mean, he's living the good life. So basically, Satan is saying, Job is a man of character, great character, and a man of great wealth. And I bet you, God, if you attack that wealth, the true character of Job is going to come out. I bet you'll see that he just loves you for your stuff. And so this is the question that begins to loom over our heads tonight. And really, we have to ask ourselves, will we pass that test? Do we just love God for this stuff? And so what happens? In verses 13 through 19, you see this awful story where a servant comes running to Job. He says, you wouldn't believe it, okay? There were all these like donkeys and oxens and these Sabian people came and struck them down and killed all these animals that you have. All these servants, I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And Job, before he can even recover from that announcement, gets another servant who comes and says, this fire came down from heaven, burned up all these camels and different things and killed all these servants. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And before he can gain his footing again, another guy comes and says, these Chaldean people, they came and they wiped out all these animals and all these servants. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And finally, before he can get his bearings, another person comes he says, all 10 of your children were dining in a house together. And there was a crazy wind that hit the house and it collapsed on them and they're all dead. And I'm the only person who's escaped to tell you that. I mean, there's 10 kids. I mean, he loved these kids. I mean, just think back to what it said, that every day he would go and offer sacrifices for them just in case they offended God or sinned against God in their hearts. He loved these kids. Job is, is kind of like you can imagine him, you know, at the ocean where you get struck by a little sneaker wave or something. And you don't know where you're at and you're trying to get your footing and then another wave comes from behind you and strikes you again and you're so disoriented. But then another wave comes and then another wave comes. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like that? He lost everything. I mean, everything. How would he respond? Verse 20 says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Unbelievable. He, he doesn't just put on a good face. He's not like, well, rejoice in the Lord always. He didn't just go out smiling as if nothing really happened. No, Job grieves. He grieves. But in his grieving, he worships. 
Does Job worship God just for God's stuff? Well, the answer is becoming more clear. But the story isn't over yet. There's still another scene. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, you see kind of the same scene unfold where there's this interaction between God and Satan. And Satan says, I've been out on the earth trying to bring accusations before people. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? He says, remember, you did these things to him and you thought he'd curse me to my face and he hasn't done that. And Satan says, well, of course he didn't. But if you strike him in his flesh, skin for skin, I bet you he'll turn and he'll curse you to your face. And so God again exercises the authority. He says, all right, you can, you can touch Job, but you have to spare his life. So that's what happens. He gets struck with this crazy, awful disease where there's these sores, it says, from the, head of his, you know, from the crown of his head to the, the, the soles of his feet. And he's taking this piece of broken pottery and he's scraping himself with it while he's sitting in ashes. That's probably a low point. I've never done that. But you can just see the, the gravity of the suffering that Job is going through. I mean, who among us has experienced this kind of loss all at once? I mean, your kids, your wealth, your health, all that you have. And now what happens? It says, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Do you see what she's doing there? She's using the accuser, Satan's original question against him. Because Satan said, well, if you do this to him, he'll curse you to your face. And now his own wife is turning on him and saying, curse God and die. He's now lost the companionship, if you will, of his wife. But listen to Job's response. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. It's important to note there because if you're reading this in the ESV, it says receive evil. And so a lot of you probably have questions like, does that mean God is sinning against Job? Because most of us kind of understand evil as synonymous with sin, right? Which obviously there's a massive connection there. But it might be a little bit easier as some of your translations translated to say trouble. He's saying, should we not receive good and trouble from God? That might be a more helpful way for you to try to understand what he's saying there. This phrase is basically a parallel phrase from what he says earlier when the first devastation actually comes to him. But you see, I don't, I don't think what's most amazing about this response of Job is that he worships. I don't think what's most amazing is that he doesn't even sin, the narrator tells us. I think what's most amazing is that it says, and in this he charged God with no wrong. All this happened to Job, and he didn't even look at God and say, what you did to me was wrong. His response is, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. He's saying, I came into this life with nothing. All that I have is by the sheer grace of God and I'm going to leave with nothing. So if God chooses to take this away from me earlier than I would see fit or earlier than my desire would be, he's God. All I have is by his grace. So he gives and he takes away. So I will still praise him. He felt like God was fair and good in doing that. You see, 
this story of Job allows us to ask a major gut-wrenching question tonight. Do I love God just for God's stuff? Do I love God because what I think God is going to give me? Do I have an understanding that I come to God, I submit to Him as my God, I I ask Him to forgive me of my sins, I, I ask Jesus to be my Savior, and in doing so, God is going to give me these other things that I want in my life, that I'm going to have a way better life. That I love God for his stuff. See, suffering reveals that answer. Suffering always reveals that answer. You see, we only feel in life like we're experiencing hard times when the things that we love are attacked. I mean, just think about that. If you don't love something, if you don't care about something, and that thing is attacked, it doesn't really bother you because you don't really love it. It's the actual fact that you love that thing and that thing is being attacked that we would say, I'm going through a hard time. I'm going through suffering right now. And so when we're talking about suffering, we're honestly talking a lot of times about what we really love in life. And so when, when suffering hits our lives, guys, that's not the opportunity for us to try to get our bearings and say, well, I'm going to start cherishing God. That's not the time in our lives to say, I'm going to pin all my trust on God. I'm going to start fearing God. God is going to now be the ultimate thing in my life. I'm going to love God and worship Him now. That's, that's not when that happens. No, when we enter into a time of suffering, it just reveals where we've already pinned our trust. It reveals what we already do love. It really, really does reveal what our heart already is after. That's what suffering reveals to us. So, do we just love God for his stuff? Do you network God? Or do you say in your suffering, I'm out. This is not what I was signing up for. So this is the answer that's revealed in suffering, but, but there is an answer that I think we want in our suffering that most of us don't get. But there is one, I think, that this story shows us that we do get. Notice here that Job doesn't get to see the answer to why he is suffering. If you read this entire book, Job never gets to understand why he is suffering. You have a really unique perspective in being able to read this story and seeing what's happening behind the scenes. But it's not like you get to the end of Job and Job sits down with God and God's like, hey, Job, I know this has been really hard. You wouldn't believe it. One day Satan comes into heaven and I'm like, what about Job? And, you know, he didn't do that. He didn't tell him the whole story and Job's like, oh, well, that's helpful. He, didn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't go, hey, Job, guess what? Just so you know, there's going to be a famous book written about your life, and people in Corvallis, Oregon in 2017 are going to be reading it, and, and I'm going to use it to massively encourage people. And Job's like, oh, okay, well, that kind of makes sense. No, he doesn't get to see any results as to why he's going through this. God doesn't reveal that to him. He doesn't get the answer to why. 
I think most of us in our suffering, that's what we're asking. Why am I going through this? And most often, we don't get that answer. But we think that somehow if I knew the answer to that question, that would empower me, that would give me strength to go through this. But I I think there's actually an answer to a different question that is more empowering as we go through moments of suffering. And that's not the answer to why. The question to why is the answer we want. But Job 1 and 2 won't tell us that. It tells us the answer to where. Where? Where is God? Where is God? In the midst of my hardship, where is He? Where is God when my world is falling apart? Where is God? Where is He? Well, you know very clearly from this passage, God is on His throne. He is on His throne. And when I say that to you, I bet that most of us picture like Queen Elizabeth in like a massive chair or something. And that's not at all what we're talking about. When we talk about when God is on his throne, it doesn't mean that he's sitting there in like some seat with some crazy crown on that you think you would find in the UK or something. No, when we're talking about God being on his throne, we're not talking about a physical seat. What we're saying is this means where, and when you're asking, where is God? This means that your life is not spiraling out of his hands. He's not saying, oh, I promise to take care of you, but I just can't handle this. Things aren't all of a sudden out of control. When we're saying, where is God? And you say he's on his throne, we're really saying that God hasn't abandoned you. That's what we're talking about. He hasn't left you. See, it's God who sets the boundaries. It's God who is involved. He is the one that's actually walking with you. He is the one who's allowing this. And honestly, that might enrage some of you. But to others, this can bring massive comfort. And this will bring worship to your life. Tim Keller said, suffering is unbearable. If you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. He said, suffering in life is unbearable. If you aren't certain that God is both for you and God is with you. You see, we read verses in the Bible that say, God holds the universe in the span of his hand. But simultaneously, that same hand that holds the universe is the same hand that has your name engraven upon it. And in moments of suffering, that's what we're driven to. See, it was actually through the worst and most innocent suffering on the cross that Jesus achieved his throne that he now reigns from. Think about that. It was actually through the suffering of the cross that Philippians said he was now exalted to the highest place. Jesus achieved his throne through the path of suffering. It took him being nailed to a cross in order to achieve that. And it was through suffering now that we know where God actually is in the midst of ours. See, Jesus wasn't just blameless like Job. Jesus was sinless, unlike Job. 
Jesus wasn't just regionally great like you read in verse 3. He wasn't just like Job, like the greatest of the East. No, Jesus was universally great. Jesus lost not just material wealth in his life, but Jesus gave up eternal wealth. See, Job is a shadow. Job is a shadow of a greater story of Jesus. And now you know where God is. See, suffering reveals the answer to a most critical question in life. Do you love God for his stuff? Is that why you love God? See, he didn't send Jesus to suffer so that you, so that he could get stuff from you. That's not why he sent Jesus. God doesn't love you for your stuff. God loves you because he loves you so that now you can freely love him. And Job gives you an answer to your suffering that you can cling to. You might not know why you're going through what you're going through, but you know where God is in your suffering. He's right here. He hasn't abandoned you. He's walking with you through it. God, I, I just want to ask you tonight to comfort people, Lord, who are experiencing